In his final letter to the American people, Dad wrote, I now begin the journey that will lead me into the sunset of my life. That is probably the worst disease you could ever have. Why? Because you lose contact and you're not able to share. In our case, you're not able to share all those wonderful memories that, that we have. And Can you have a conversation that makes sense to you with the president? Not now. How soon can we bring a therapeutic to patients that are losing what really makes us most human? Losing capacity of the mind is a, a life-changing experience, both for patients as well as for their families. I think if we compare this to the 1990s when the genetics and the understanding of mutations in oncology transformed that field, I'm hopeful that this is where we are now in neuroscience, where in the next decade we'll start to see therapeutics that are effective, that make a difference in this disease. Welcome to our podcast about biotechnology breakthroughs, the DNA of all living things, and the DNA of scientists, companies, and patients who make miracles happen. I'm Dr. Michelle McMurray-Heath, and you're listening to I Am Bio. The human brain is the most astonishing and complicated machine on the planet, thanks to millions of years of natural evolution. Given this complexity, it stands to reason that neurological diseases would be the hardest mysteries we have to solve in all of medicine. And indeed, they are. Think about it. Your brain contains 100 billion neurons, each of which is connected to a thousand other neurons, which each fire at an average of 200 electrical signals a second. This is a symphony of electrochemistry, and it's what allows us to think, feel, and function in the world. In essence, you are your brain. Your life experiences and cognitive activities create and strengthen the synapses that make you the person you are. But as human beings get older, Genetic and environmental factors can cause neurons to suffer damage or even die. And once these nerve cells perish, they almost never regenerate. The broken neural connections can lead to progressive memory loss, cognitive impairment, disorientation, and personality changes. This is the heartbreaking pathophysiology of Alzheimer's disease, the sixth leading cause of death in America. In the late stages, Patients may have difficulty walking, sitting, or raising their head. And eventually, many will lose their ability to swallow or control other bodily functions. Caregivers experience exhaustion, depression, financial strain, and the heartbreak of doing so much for a loved one who often can't recognize or remember them as the disease progresses. Alzheimer's patients can live for 10 years or more in this deteriorating state, which is why the disease is often called the long goodbye. While we've made great progress in lowering the mortality rate of countless diseases in this new millennium, Alzheimer's isn't yet one of them. 
the trend line is actually going in the opposite direction. U.S. deaths from this disease have more than doubled between 2000 and 2015. A new case is diagnosed every 65 seconds. The national cost of caring for patients with Alzheimer's and dementia is projected to exceed a trillion dollars by 2050. That would make it the most expensive disease in history. To date, there have been more than 150 experimental Alzheimer's therapies without a breakthrough yet. But for the first time in a long time, there is reason for hope. And that's because in this data-driven age, scientists are gaining a trove of fresh insights about what causes neurodegeneration. As the search for a panacea continues, early intervention and lifestyle changes can potentially slow the cognitive decline. Hopefully, this can give neuroscientists the time they need to discover an elusive therapy that can transform the long goodbye into years of better health and happy memories. Today's guest is Dr. Carol Ho, a whip-smart neuroscientist who is chief medical officer and head of development at Denali Therapeutics. Prior to that, she served as Vice President of Early Clinical Development at Genentech for nearly eight years. At Denali, the company motto is Defeat Degeneration. Carol and her team are busy turning groundbreaking scientific insights into what feels like our best chance yet to develop effective medicines for diseases of the brain. Not just for Alzheimer's, but also for neurodegenerative diseases like Parkinson's, Lou Gehrig's disease, and Hunter's syndrome. Carol, welcome to I Am Bio. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be here. I saw a clip from a fascinating TED-Med talk you gave where you explained how important and difficult it can be to identify the genetic basis of a disease that you're trying to treat. You told the story of an extended family from the nation of Colombia who shared a frightening genetic mutation and a dogged scientist who tracked hundreds of them down for the sake of medical progress. Do you mind sharing that story with our listeners? Sure, absolutely. This is a really incredible story of the design of the first prevention study for Alzheimer's disease. Scientific American actually profiled this back in 2015 and referred to it as one of the 10 world-changing ideas. This study is ongoing and involves 300 Colombian patients who share a genetic mutation that causes Alzheimer's disease. In this patient population, there's a 100% certainty of having the disease if you carry this mutation. The science of Alzheimer's disease over the last decade has really enabled a much better understanding of this disease. And through this understanding, and particularly in this patient population, the work done by Francisco Lopera in understanding the natural history of this disease, and enabled the design of a clinical study that is run by Genentech and Roche to ask the question of, can we prevent these patients who know that they're going to get Alzheimer's disease from having the disease before they have symptoms? And what were the results of the study, and how is it informing your work today? So the study is still ongoing and will likely read out in the 2022 timeframe. However, I think a lot of the principles that went into designing this study are principles that we always try to achieve. And this includes using biomarkers to drive development and uh, inform the uh, the design of the study. You know, here on I Am Bio, we really like to um, help people put science within their grasp. So can I start by unpacking the term biomarker? You know, when I was at FDA, 
I don't think I realized before I got there how critical a biomarker can be to discovering how a new drug works. Can you explain in lay terms what a biomarker is? Sure. And that's a that's a great question because biomarkers can mean so many things. So in simple terms, a biomarker is a test or a analyte that can tell you something about a disease. A biomarker can be used in many different ways. A biomarker can be used to diagnose a clinical condition, which will tell you that there is something, um, a disease process that's evolving. So in very simple terms, for example, cholesterol is a biomarker for demonstrating hyperlipidemia, which could be a risk for coronary artery disease or a risk for stroke. That's an example of a simple blood-based biomarker that tells you something about risk and something about a disease. It's wonderful because, you know, our use of biomarkers has just evolved so much over the last 10 to 15 years. You know, as you're describing in this case, when you have a complex disease and you want to know kind of early on or even as it progresses what's happening inside the body, it's often really helpful to have this kind of surrogate that you can track to know whether a person is getting worse or getting better. And that's one of the reasons biomarkers are so useful. So in this Colombian study, in this population where we could identify who these individuals were with a simple blood test and a PCR test for demonstrating the mutation, this is not something that we can do in most patients such as sporadic Parkinson's disease or sporadic Alzheimer's disease. In most of these patients, there's not a single genetic mutation that tells us that they have the disease. So being able to identify these patients before they go on to have the disease is very challenging. But we can utilize these principles of identifying the right patient population in our studies today by developing new biomarkers that enable us to identify patients that may be more likely to um, respond to a therapy and enroll those patients into a study. I think the second thing that um, one learns from a study like this is the importance of natural history data in understanding the disease progression and understanding the expectation of without treatment, what would be the disease course. So the natural history of the disease is what a disease would do to a human if it weren't interrupted, if it were just allowed to run free. And you're really trying to intercede in that, are you not? That's correct. And maybe to go back to the concept of biomarkers, one role of biomarkers is for diagnosis, and that is a biomarker that tells you that you may have the disease. So an example of that biomarker is amyloid. Amyloid is a protein that deposits in brains of Alzheimer's disease and is one of the pathologic hallmarks of the disease. With PET imaging, which is an, uh, a, a type of imaging that allows you to visualize amyloid in the brain, you can identify that these individuals that have amyloid in the brain have a risk that's higher than others to go on to have Alzheimer's disease. In addition to um, being a diagnostic for potentially identifying individuals that are at risk, it's also a prognostic in the sense that it will um, indicate a, a higher likelihood of going on to have that disease. And biomarkers like this, in combination with natural history, enable us to start to understand the trajectory of a disease course from the time that the biology starts to change, for example, when amyloid is deposited, until the patient actually progresses to a point of having clinical symptoms. The really important thing about understanding that natural history is that it enables us to understand 
when we run a clinical trial, when do we want to intervene? Who are the patients that we want to enroll? And what do we expect over the time course of a clinical trial that patients will progress without treatment? So key, because we want to be able to know who's showing early signs, who might benefit from a new therapy or preventive tactic, and who might go on to just recover on their own. So I assume not everyone with Alzheimer's carries this rare genetic mutation that you saw in the family in Colombia, since Alzheimer's disease is far from rare. So I'm wondering what can we do to find out who's at risk? Can smartphones and wearable technology help you get useful data? You're exactly right in terms of these genetic mutations um, that we studied in the Columbia population. This genetic mutation is very rare and is a form of familial Alzheimer's disease that represents a very small portion of all the patients that have Alzheimer's disease. However, we can learn from this in the sense that the biology is very similar. The progression of the disease once amyloid starts to deposit is very similar. Now, the complication is that we don't normally screen for early biologic changes that cause Alzheimer's disease. There isn't a blood test that we can use to detect a mutation. And amyloid imaging is not something that is done as a standard screening process in the clinic. If a patient is known to have amyloid in the brain, given that there's no effective treatment, it wouldn't change how that patient is treated or what access to therapy they may get. And in fact, it's not even reimbursed by insurance at this point. And so the the incentive to get that sort of test um, is, is often very low in the clinic. That will certainly change if there is a effective therapy that treats these diseases. But for now, we're not identifying very early on that these individuals are at risk of progressing on to have the disease. So this is where the question of smartphones and wearable technology, can this be used to gather clinical data that can indicate very early that somebody is likely progressing down the course of of Alzheimer's disease or another neurodegenerative disease? Our behavior as a society has entirely changed with the advent of smartphone technology. People are using these phones every day and are using them in in relatively uh, predictable ways. What kinds of apps they use, how quickly do they type, um, how, how quickly do they access information like phone numbers on their phone. And these are examples of where if we could collect this data in an organized way, be able to analyze this data in a, in a logical way, um, we could utilize this data to identify when patients change in their behavior and may be at risk for a clinical neurodegenerative disease. This could help identify individuals that then could gain access to um, other uh, technologies for determining whether they have a disease, like in Alzheimer's disease, PET scan imaging or lumbar punctures to demonstrate amyloid um, pathology. It's also important at these early stages to give families peace of mind, is it not? I mean, in the early stages of these diseases, it's, it's, it's hard to really grasp and get your hands around how your family member may be changing and evolving. And so having some clarity could bring some peace of mind, could it not? Absolutely. And I think we all have been with friends and family who ask the question of, you know, I forgot where I put my keys yesterday. Does this mean that I have dementia? 
And these kinds of questions are questions that as we age are, are very normal questions and in many cases are not related at all to dementia. Young people also lose their keys. But what I think happens in society is that there is a tendency or a desire to actually, um, in some cases, deny when we see things progressing because there isn't currently a treatment. I think we intrinsically know that a diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease at this time is a very challenging diagnosis that impacts, obviously, the patient, but very much the family as well. This diagnosis can also take a, you know, a significant amount of time before a patient and a family knows. And so, as you pointed out, there's a period of wondering, of concern, of doubt, of uncertainty, um, which can be really challenging both to patients as well as their families. You know, I'm, we, we lost my father to multi-infarct dementia and heart disease. And I remember that period of probably about seven years where behavior changed, memory changed, but it was unclear what exactly was going on. And we were perhaps fortunate that we could get not a definitive diagnosis, but at least a highly suggestive diagnostic test um, in his carotid artery scan. But it is really challenging. How easy is it today to distinguish between the different types of dementia? Because there are many, are there not? That's absolutely right. And from a clinical perspective, it's actually very challenging. And we, we learned this actually in the Alzheimer's field in the early days of doing clinical trials. So about a decade ago, as the understanding of amyloid imaging as a, as a, um, a significant risk factor for Alzheimer's disease became clear, we started to actually screen patients for inclusion in Alzheimer's disease trials by confirming that they had the presence of amyloid. Very interestingly, what we found was that at community centers that diagnose Alzheimer's disease, they got the diagnosis right only about 50% of the time. And actually, only 70% had, had Alzheimer's disease. There are many different forms of dementia. And so, so there, there are many clinical syndromes that can look like Alzheimer's disease, but are actually other forms of dementia that are less common than Alzheimer's disease, but also contribute to uh, the, the population with dementia. And this includes things like frontotemporal lobe dementia, which is caused by tau, another uh, protein that deposits in the brain of individuals with dementia. And these individuals may have a picture that looks similar to Alzheimer's disease, but may not respond to the same sorts of therapies that are currently being developed for Alzheimer's disease. I remember back in medical school, there's nothing more frustrating for a patient or a family than a diagnosis of exclusion, because it means that you go a very long route of excluding one possibility after another before you get to an answer. So we're in the heyday of data-driven science and high-throughput sequencing, and I, I think we're only beginning to realize the synergies made possible by mixing world-class biology and world-class data science. We're seeing many examples of this in the COVID space. It's really about speeding up the search for that elusive genetic mutation that can provide the answers to inscrutable scientific questions. What might have taken years of plodding research in the past can now sometimes be crunched by computers in months or sometimes even weeks. Can you talk about artificial intelligence and machine learning technologies 
that can be brought to bear to better understand neurodegenerative diseases? Large data and being able to analyze this data has been enormously helpful in uh, the, the drug development space. Looking at this large database of all of these genetic mutations and looking at large numbers of people, we can look at where there are risks that may be very small to increase your likelihood of having a, a disease, but these risks can be identified when looking at large data. Looking at these very small risks associated with, with genetics has identified uh, uh, new targets and new biology in disease that was previously unknown. Large data analysis um, has enabled us to identify that in Alzheimer's disease, 50% of the genetic mutations that are risks for Alzheimer's disease are from genes that code for proteins that are expressed in a cell type in the brain called microglia. So microglia, you can think of those as helper cells in the brain, um, and they help neurons uh, in terms of survival and function and are a very important part of the maintenance of the brain. This was somewhat unexpected to see that half of the genetic mutations in Alzheimer's disease risk are in microglia. The focus had previously been largely on neurons because neurons are the cell type that we think helps us think, gives us our personality, helps us learn. But what we found was actually microglia were an important cell type. Knowing this, this has opened up the doors to multiple therapeutic targets and modify how microglia behave. At, uh, at Denali Therapeutics, we have a couple of programs that specifically address microglial biology. There have been more than 150 experimental Alzheimer's therapies without a breakthrough, often focused on reducing that beta amyloid plaque that you described that can accumulate in the brain. We often hear the term blood-brain barrier, which makes it harder for medicines to reach their intended target in the brain if their entry point is through the blood system. Without getting too technical, can you explain how this barrier works? Sure. So the blood-brain barrier is a naturally occurring barrier that prevents toxins or other things from gaining access to the brain. Now, this is very important because the brain helps you think, and if this were not highly regulated, the brain would be subject to toxins that could affect the way one thinks. However, this protective blood-brain barrier becomes very challenging when one is trying to develop a therapeutic that is intended to reach the brain, is viewed as perhaps a toxin, so to speak, in quotes, by the, by the body that wants to exclude this, but it is actually going to be important in the therapeutic efficacy of the molecule to get across the blood-brain barrier and directly target the brain. So is it possible that one of those 150 failed Alzheimer's therapy may actually be the holy grail, but we just haven't figured out how to get it where it needs to go? Absolutely. And when we started Denali Therapeutics, one of the first things that we did was um, in the summer, we had a couple of interns go through and review all of the failed th programs um, in Alzheimer's disease and identify why they failed. It's very interesting to find that many of them never demonstrated that the therapeutic was actually getting into the brain. 
So I think that is one area of, of drug development that is really important in neurotherapeutics. There are chemical engineering ways to enable uh, blood-brain barrier penetration. However, with large molecule therapeutics, which are antibodies or proteins that are delivered um, as medications, these do not cross the blood-brain barrier without specific engineering. So antibodies and large proteins have only a 0.01% penetration into the brain. So you can imagine that if you are depending on this small proportion of the drug accessing the brain, you may not have the desired efficacy that you um, would be seeking. So is the vehicle, the neurological transport vehicle that Denali is working on designed for these large molecules or how, how does it help? Yes. Yeah, so the, the platform that we're designing at Denali is called the transport vehicle platform. Certain things need to get into the brain in order to support brain health. One of these things is iron. So iron is necessary to be transported into the brain for cellular health. And so what we've done is we've engineered this tag that we can engineer into proteins and antibodies that enables us to use the body's own mechanism of getting things that are desirable across the blood-brain barrier to get our therapeutics across the blood-brain barrier. As we've discussed, there's so much data coming in now in new forms, and we have to make sure that regulators can keep up. Many therapies die on their way to FDA approval. They may show efficacy in a small number of patients, but not enough to be tested in a large group of patients. I spent several years as an associate science director at FDA, and I know it's always difficult within the agency to keep up with the changing state of the science. I'm curious how you would grade the agency in its regulation of central nervous system therapies and and where you might suggest the FDA could improve. So I've found the FDA to be a very collaborative and science-driven agency. I think that it is the responsibility of the, the company that is making the drug to educate the FDA on novel technologies and novel biomarkers that are emerging and are being used in our development plans. This is an area that is very much evolving and the science is very new. And one of the things that I think is really important as a community is that we collaborate space to bring this science and this technology to the FDA. In many cases, industry sponsors will want to hold information because there may be some proprietary advantage to having um, data in, in designing clinical trials. However, as I mentioned earlier in this podcast, the importance of natural history data in enabling um, drug development and enabling understanding are critically important. And this actually requires very much a collaboration across industry and education of the FDA so that they are aware of all of this data that is that is emerging. I've seen many examples where the FDA has been very progressive and flexible in their thinking. The Alzheimer prevention trial, there was significant flexibility. It's important that there be flexibility in enabling and encouraging uh, industry sponsors to move forward with these programs that could be considered high risk given that there's no precedence for approval. So one final question, and it calls for you to consult your crystal ball. Um, As I mentioned previously, the trend line for Alzheimer's mortality is going in the wrong direction, at least here in the U.S. In the most optimistic scenario, how long do you think it will take for our industry to create a therapeutic that can slow or perhaps even prevent Alzheimer's from robbing so many people of their golden years? 
That's a great question and something that I spend every day thinking about. How soon can we bring a therapeutic to patients that are losing what really makes us most human? Losing capacity of the mind is a a life-changing experience, both for patients as well as for their families. I'm hopeful that in the next decade, we will see progress in this area. And the reason that I'm optimistic about this is that I believe that the time is right now for us to be successful in developing therapeutics for neurodegeneration. The human genetics that we spoke about enables a new understanding of the biology of neurodegeneration and with better translational medicine tools that include using biomarkers, imaging, genetics, we increase our likelihood and chance for success in this area. I think if we compare this to the 1990s when the genetics and the understanding of mutations in oncology transformed that field, I'm hopeful that this is where we are now in neuroscience, where in the next decade we'll start to see therapeutics that are effective, that make a difference in this disease. But once we get approval of those therapeutics, we can also address combination therapy, where we look at a combination of therapies that could have a benefit in this disease and really transform and increase the degree of impact that we have on patients' lives. Well, that's certainly an optimistic picture, and there's so many of us rooting for your success. So thank you so much for joining us today and telling us a little bit about it. It's a really important area to understand. Thank you so much. That's all for today. Don't forget to subscribe on your podcast player of choice. Or even better, if you've learned something useful today, please share a link to the I Am Biopod with your family and friends. To learn more about the work of the heroes and sheroes in lab coats, please visit iambio.org. On our next episode, we're going to talk about the topics on everyone's mind. In eight days, America votes. With the country in the throes of the worst pandemic in a century, It's no exaggeration to say that the 2020 election is a life-or-death moment in the history of our republic. None of us can afford to sit this one out. For voting details, please visit bio.org slash vote. Our next episode will post the Monday before the election. I'll talk to veteran political strategist Steve Elmendorf about the high stakes for the biotech industry that's working overtime to end the COVID nightmare. It's an episode you won't want to miss. Next Monday on I Am Bio.